G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. This Crunch Time podcast proudly brought to you by iPrimers. Make the right NBN choice with iPrimers, your NBN experts. Call 131101. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 4 of the Footyology podcast. My name's Rowan Connolly, I'm joined every week by Mark Fine to discuss the round of football just completed and all the pressing issues in the football world. G'day Fine. G'day Rowan and a special shout out to anybody listening on an aeroplane because a... A friend of mine, actually, well, not a friend, somebody that I met at a footy function came up. I knew him, and he said, I listened to Footyology this week. I was flying back from Queensland. He said it was great, made the trip go really quickly, and I thought, well, what a wonderful way to be heard. So safe flight. Hopefully, (laughs) uh, this makes the flight seem like just that. Well, I did say the uh, last week that the reaction had been good. We shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, but... um We've had uh, we've had good support finally, so much so, and uh, please allow the self indulgence. But on the iTunes podcast charts this week, for about three days, uh, for Australian sporting podcasts, we're actually ranking number one. Number one. Yep. You didn't know that. No. Who fall- honestly not? Who falls behind us? Um, well, give me is, give some perspective. Uh, Wednesday. This is Wednesday, Thursday. Okay, so we had thirty for thirty podcasts coming in number two. ESPN, pretty established brand. Football Weekly, The Guardian, The Age, Real Footy Podcast at number four, three spots behind, and uh, number four, Total Football, The Telegraph, and The Football Ramble at number six. And those last two are soccer. I strongly suspect so in the afl world we're going all right you know that i'm chuffed the only sort of ranking charts i ever knew growing up were the colored pieces of paper you got from brashes with the 3xy top 40 on it <laughs> yes. so i'm feeling like sweets fox on the run to david essex's you're going <laughs> to make me a star it's about 1973 i think okay that's enough we put, congratulations we put them in their place like <laughs> The boys did to well, David Essex. Well, pressure's on now. We've got to keep it up. So without further ado, we've got plenty of segments to get through. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, that's a wrap. Okay, Fonny, massive round 21. Really critical games, obviously. Bulldogs, GWS Friday night. Uh, Geelong, Richmond Saturday. Melbourne, St Kilda Sunday. Obviously, the the pick of the action. What did it all mean? Um, what it all meant for me was... And it's sort of funny because I thought Geelong put in one of their, arguably their best performance of the year, given who was missing. But I'm becoming increasingly convinced only three teams can win the flag. Can you name the three teams I'm thinking of? I think only three teams can win the flag, and I'm sure we're on the same page. Almost because these teams also lorded over the next group of challenges in certain ways. Adelaide. Yep. Bonafide. Yep. GWS. Yep. Have a ceiling that we haven't seen yet. Yep. And Sydney are professional, thorough, and getting week by week 
more menacing. And yep. the reason there is only three is because the other contenders in Geelong, well, Sydney now owns Geelong yep. in, in a real way. In finals, last year's preliminary, then at Simmons, Richmond don't match up to Geelong. You mm. know, it's almost paper, rock, scissors there. And below that, the Not worth just, considering. No, they, they, they really are involved in a scrap for making the finals, and I think that's the Everest. I'll, I'll give it to you in a nutshell for me. Adelaide uh, tick all the boxes and have played the best standard of football of any team this year. GWS getting players back from injury, got their uh, roll your sleeves up and get a bit dirty attitude back, and all things being equal, I think have the best list. Um, and Sydney, after that horrendous start, have played consistently the best football over the last three months. They're now 12 wins out of 14. So, And they've got the experience, which you know generally counts for plenty. So apologies to Geelong and Richmond. The Cats, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, they, they've beaten Adelaide once. Um, they drew with GWS when GWS were racked with injury. But for me, I think what the Cats lack is just that explosiveness. They're a good, honest, hard-toiling team. But what's interesting, Fanny, I did the numbers. First five games of the year, the Cats topped 100 points. They were so potent. They're still second for points scored. But in the last 15 games, they've only broken 100 points twice. I reckon this year, it's not going to be enough just to be methodical and efficient and hardworking. You're going to need a bit of real brilliance as well. And I just don't think they've got that relative to the others. All right, but... That has been the case for most of the year. I could not agree more, except Stephen Motlop on the weekend played like a player who knew that all his favours had been called and he no longer had... uh, He no longer had uh, anything owing to him from premierships or from brilliant other performances. It was almost like, you know, I'm not in the team when it's at full strength. This is what I need to do. So he added some explosiveness. And I know Nakai Cockatoo is injury-prone and may not be seen again this year, but he's actually got the ability to not play for four weeks, come back and be brilliant. If those two were able to put in a, a, a finals campaign, does that change your opinion? Uh, yes. And I, I've look, I've written, if you head to footyology, you'll find Rocco's rap. I've, I've touched on this. I think that that means for me, Cockatoo is almost now at the stage where I don't reckon you can consider him a factor. But Motlop, and it was a great last quarter he played against the Tigers, he is as important to their flag chances for mine as Selwood and Dangerfield. And no, he's more important because Dangerfield and Selwood have taken them as far as these two yeah, tyros yeah. humanly okay, yeah, can. Yeah. The, and they're, they're not premiership material. The only way they can transcend what they've done, yeah. there's no more that Selwood and Dangerfield could do. Motlop's got more improvement in him than a two-year-old unraced colt. Now, just to continue this argument, people will say, and quite rightly they'll say, at looking at the bottom half of the eight, well, the Bulldogs did it from seventh. The week off between round 23 and the finals is a big plus for those bottom half of the eight teams. No doubt about that. But the Bulldogs last year won 15 games. It was a more than any seventh place side had ever won. They were a pretty good seventh place side. I don't reckon the sides in the lower half of the eight this year are in their ballpark. And the numbers back it up. I went through um, the ladder at the end of the round and, and compared Adelaide, GWS, Sydney, the records of all the other teams thereabouts against them, took in the Bulldogs and Essendon in ninth and 10th place. So all those other teams down to 10 
against Adelaide, GWS and Sydney. They've played 26 games. How many do you reckon they've won? Four. Five. Five and a draw, 20 losses. And it's pretty consistent. Look, Richmond beat GWS, uh, but lost two of them the first time, and they lost to Adelaide very handsomely, and they lost to Sydney, albeit narrowly. Um, Port lose to everyone. They beat Sydney in round one. They haven't beaten a decent team since. Melbourne have had four of these games, lost three of them, beat Adelaide in Adelaide. Uh, West Coast can't beat anyone of consequence. Bulldogs, five games against those three teams, lost four. Bombers, uh, zero and four. You know, so what, what are the arguments for any of them doing what the Bulldogs did? Okay, so they are really good um, empirical evidence there backing you up. Let's just take this weekend. Around 20, this is about go time historically. Teams, as they work into preparing, not preparing for the finals physically, but starting as to get into gear, playing football without mercy. So Adelaide, brilliant against Essendon. Mm. I mean, they really... No, they were. They were great. They, they, really, they really banged them up. Yeah. GWS start to hurt teams. Bulldogs there. Arch rival. You couldn't split them last year. They pants them, and Sydney emulsify the Dockers. Mm. On the other hand, the teams in the bottom half of the eight ensemble are, even in winning, they're going backwards. West Coast, terrible. 31 points up against Carlton at halftime, level at three-quarter time, five less scoring shots. They stunk up the house and won. Um, Bulldogs get pants by GWS. Essendon get pants if they make it by Adelaide. Melbourne play the most incompetent St Kilda of all time, and it's four points of difference in the last quarter. And really, Melbourne showed they look like you know junior so junior members of a finals team with that forward line. That's going, you know, they won, but that's going nowhere. And uh, is there another te- team in there? Oh Why no, they? but I mean you got the Bulldogs and Essendon. Oh, you mentioned Essendon, but I'm uh, saying these are bottom half of the eight teams. It just happens. I mean, normally teams that are getting into the eight might be on a bit of a run of form. Yeah. But it just so happens that they're all... They're faltering. They're all really not... Look, they're, they're marking time or going backwards. Just, and Port, oh, sorry, and Port Adelaide, mm. who win against Collingwood, do so in the sort of manner that just reminds you that they can beat a team beneath them, sometimes laboriously, and they look every bit the same side that will get... P- just thrashed by teams better than them. Just a last point on this to single out, um, not that they're you know more important than others, but three guys stand out for me as further endorsing this argument. One for Adelaide, Matt Crouch. Now, when Sloan got tagged out of, oh, I think three games within about a four or five week period mid season, everyone said, "Well, where's the support?" Now, at that stage, he didn't have enough of it. Since then, I think Brad Crouch, Brad Crouch has gone to another level, but Matt Crouch has as well. And, but Matt Crouch now kicks the ball beautifully. Yeah. See that goal he kicked on the McGrath turnover? Yeah. Oh, that's class. So, uh, you know, throw in Douglas Natkins. They've got enough midfield depth. Um, Canelio for yeah. GWS. He yeah, has yes. made a huge difference in, in just three games. How could, how could the number one, that's how. He was a number one draft pick, best kid in the land. You saw him in that the WA grand, grand final. final, yeah. Should we be surprised at a brilliant midfielder, albeit with an annoying injury that kept him out for most of the year? You sort of think, well, um, 
they can't be that lucky, can they? Can't mm. be that blessed, can they? Mm. That they've been in the top two the whole year and they've had arguably a player who's almost in the top five in the AFL if he played all season coming back, but they do. He's a gun. And and the other one, and it's easy to take him for granted because he's been around a fair while now, but Josh Kennedy hasn't been there for the Swans the last two weeks and they've, they've barely missed him. And Luke Parker has to be a huge reason for that. You know, it's a great thing for Sydney. A lot of fans of teams that are going through a brilliant period, they'll ring talk back or they'll talk about themselves and go, not only have we got that 22, look who's playing in the VFL, da-da, da-da, or Neefel or wherever, and they list five or six players. When you're going as well as Sydney, you do not want to change the team. One player coming in or two, okay. So to bring back one player, Josh Kennedy, into that team, it doesn't disrupt the harmony and mm. the cohesiveness. You just bring in the archetypal finals midfielder, mm. which he has been his whole career. Yeah. The no, tougher the game, the more the contest, the more the lockdown, the better the Josh Kennedy. I'll tell you what, if they get up, it's going to be a remarkable flag, if for no other reason than no side has even made finals after being 0-6, and six, let alone won a flag. I'll tell you this, if those top three teams that we mentioned, the three chances all make the preliminary final, I fear for GWS. For all their precocious ability, they then face the really seasoned Sydney yeah, and the experience through mainly losses but vastly improved Adelaide. I, mm. I just think they're between a rock and a hard place almost. No, fair, fair call. All right, let's talk about um, more briefly, but Melbourne-St Kilda, because those two teams have been bracketed together for a few years now, and pre-season, I think everyone sort of had one or both of them potentially making the eight. I, I think I had St Kilda fifth and Melbourne seventh or eighth on my ladder. It's pretty clear to me now I got them the wrong way round. Look, if... if we would have told supporters of both teams, round 20, you're playing for a spot in the finals in a very even year. Mm. They probably would have been enthused. Happy with that, yeah. But that isn't how today played out. First of all, it's, as we've described, a bit mediocre now, the battle for the last two spots in the eight. Mm. It's not going the way of quality football. It's who's playing the less bad football at the moment. The first four minutes of this game were so abysmal, so error-ridden, so inaccurate by foot for both teams that it was hard to believe that this was the final before the final. But obviously, you can't play like that the whole time. Melbourne snapped out of it, and St Kilda stuck to it for a half. Yet they weren't out of the game by three-quarter time because Melbourne went in with a forward line that was, in, in different parts, unlucky, vindictive, and out of form. Vindictive in the why was Watts not playing? What is he? Does this go back to pre-season? Look, probably hasn't helped. He's had two weeks back from injury, and they mm. were not great. Wiedemann does. Wiedemann at his best couldn't play a game of importance. He started off on Carlisle to sort of quell him. Carlisle was the only St Kilda player doing anything, and he couldn't get. Wiedemann ended up kicking a goal at the end of the game, but Jack Watts at least has scope and. In that error-ridden game, it was crying out, because they were just getting the ball into 50 on the back of St Kilda turnovers. Where's somebody who can just go back and kick it through and stop mucking around? Well, in the end, uh, Mitch Hannon did it. Did well, it was at the beginning, yeah. Hannon at the end. That's not really sustainable. But this game, Melbourne have to, have to be given credit for snapping out of the malaise. Mm. At St Kilda were atrocious. Alan Richardson, I've never... He almost... 
worked himself up into a lather in the press conference. He started mm. off by answering, very disappointing, worst turnover ever. And then he realised and started thinking about it. He goes, he was using terms like, um, uh, I, so I actually can't remember the term he used, but he described the turnover as abysmal. Mm. And then and then added to that, he started realising what it was. It was it was terrible. Well, I want to ask you. In the end, I put St Kilda higher on my ladder pre-season because I thought they looked a little more dependable and a little more solid. So that's what I, I found their failure to be like that the most disappointing for me. What what worries me about them is I reckon they lack a, they lack class. I thought oh, good, they'd, that's uh, well, time, well, they well I thought class. they'd be classier than that. All right. There is a there is look people look at St Kilda and say they don't really this is their midfield. David Armitage when right is a very good player. Mm. And he takes buffeting but he can he's a goal kicker. And I can I can let a confidentiality out of the bag. Jack Stephen has been since round seven and managing a groin injury that really OP. A, a gro- he's got a groin injury that really demanded time away from playing football, but they couldn't afford to. They don't have enough pace. He's been brave. He generally now manages his game time, starts slowly, and so he gives himself something in the second half, which he's done. Um, You've got Jack Stephen hampered and no David Armitage for the entire year. It is pedestrian. And they still, even with them playing at their best, need some more speed and class. But they are two big losses in a team that now plays the sort of football that I said to I said before the game, they can beat Melbourne if Melbourne are off. If mm. Melbourne play well, they can't win. Yeah. St Kilda now play a level of football more dependent on what frame of mind the opposition are in. Well, I, I thought in the end for me pre-season, I said, I think Melbourne's best is better, but I think St Kilda can deliver their best more frequently, and that hasn't it's happened. Still, but it's still line ball, actually, between the two. D- do you think St Kilda can become a significantly more skillful team for next year? Yeah, they can, because... A guy called Kelly to help. They need to recruit. They need to recruit a quality midfielder. They need some certain things to happen, and those certain things are that team desperately needs McCartan to play and to deliver some consistent football. That's a big ask. He's never really played much, never delivered much, but he does have some ability. So that's that's a fingers crossed hope for the Saints, and they they, they really need desperately all their mid, those two midfielders fit and somebody else. Okay, one more quickly because we're running out of time for this segment. Um, Western Bulldogs. Now, we deserve to talk about them, if only because they look like they're every chance of missing the finals. Hasn't happened since, what, uh, Hawthorne 09 missed out, um, Essendon in 94 missed out, Adelaide in 99 missed out. But, you know, it's three in a long time. So where are they at, do you reckon? Uh I'm not sure where the team's at because they've always been an interesting combination of a 22 that you might not have expected. That mm. Premiership 22, I said when they won the Premiership, that's a great effort, but the next time they'll all play be together is at the 10-year reunion because that team will never play together again. Well, it was a great coaching effort. How do you reckon the coach well, is he was, going? He, he, his coaching effort was simply without compare. So how's, he, how's Luke Beveridge gone this year, do you okay. think? You know what? Some isolated whispers through the season are gaining momentum, and, and there are more of them. It's almost a bit of a dull hum 
of dissatisfaction with team selection, yeah, with the uh, well, there was a false dawn against Essendon. The return to yeah, that excellent that football that, that lasted exactly a week and 15 minutes against Brisbane and an inability to recapture both in personnel and in harmony the magic of the destiny that was 2016. Team selection's been the most... So, we're, we're, sorry, when you say whispers, where are, they, are you talking about whispers among supporters or do you mean internally? Uh, inter- supporters? Yeah. Supporters, turn, you know, they, they will love Beveridge forever to delivering the Holy Grail. Yeah. But they then say, but, and there's more of that. But also some perplexing selections that will have players like Fletcher Roberts, um, Tom Campbell, Tom Liberatore, mm. talking to their managers about uh, finding out where we fit in the scheme. What's our place in this team? Well, Lib is in a bit of a hole. I mean, he was I mean, awful. Fletcher Flet- Roberts is not used. They lose Marcus Adams. Their back line is short and uh, gasping for height and strength. And he's a sort of honest, serviceable backman that's getting overlooked for Lewis Young, fair enough, but for actually sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul situations. Rough, you know, mm. players have to go back there. We need to fill gaps. Well, hang on. Why is Fletcher Roberts not play? And... I can tell you that there is a definite query on why are these guys not playing? And when Cloak's been recalled three times almost as soon as Wright, and he doesn't really play a position. We need a key backman, not Cloak speculatively running somewhere in no man's land. I'll just say this, though, that you mentioned the magic of last year. Sometimes it's a really, I don't know, is the word I'm looking for ephemeral? It's something that can't, always be engineered by a coach. It just happens. It's a, a happy um, marriage of circumstance. And, and Ethereal? Ephemeral means anything related to newspapers or paper. Oh, maybe, maybe I've just got that on the brain after 30-odd <laughs> years. But um, Sort of you know, collectible paper. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it, magic happens, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it, it just hasn't happened this year. Kismet. And, and and the the changes, whereas last year they just you know the pieces just fitted into the and every the puzzle player, that every hasn't player, happened. Every player picked believed in themselves, and every player dropped accepted it for the greater good. It was these sort of things last in the bubble that was the 2016 grand final campaign. Mm. I think even by summer's end, players that were you know happy to stand stand by and watch their teammates win quizzically in some cases were saying, well, hang on a sec, I'm actually, you know, I, I, I want to be in this team. I should be in this team. and uh, It's an odd side now. Was it? Smith, yeah. Finals hero. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty tough on Clive Smith, I reckon. Yeah, gets dropped, gets dropped, you know, more often than more often than hot potatoes. It, it was always going to be a hard thing to back up from where they were, but especially the way it was done. Yeah, exactly. It was like a it was like a recipe written on a recipe with a thousand a thousand items in it written in on sand. It was just very hard to recreate. Okay, last word on this and this segment. Uh, will the dogs make the eight for the final eight? They'd rather not because I think that they would be a team that did the miraculous last year could be embarrassed this year. Will they make it? No. I think they will. I think they'll scrape him, but I, I'm with you. I think they'll be straight out. 
on Footyology, hot or not. Okay, we all know how this works. Uh, you kick us off this week, hot or not? I start with Jake Melton, hot. Okay. Not a player I would associate with hot for most of his career, but have a look at his last five weeks. Multiple goals, five weeks in a row. Really? Two against St Kilda, game backwards. Two mm. against St Kilda, two against GWS, two against North, three against Port, three against Adelaide. And he provides forward pressure. Now one of the most reliable goal-kicking lockdown forwards. Just if you're getting two goals a game out of a midfielder, you're doing pretty well, aren't you? Yeah. And plays that half-forward flank position tough and hard and gets goals. He's very good. No, good call. Um, all right, I'm going to start with a hot. And uh, you haven't heard much necessarily about this guy this year, and I've got no idea why. Don Pike. For me, he's a clear coach of the year. Been sensational for Adelaide. Uh, easy to easy to forget that going into the final round last year, they were a top four side and just missed out on that. And then the way the draw panned out, they, they lost to Sydney in week two of the finals. But he's taken them to another level again. They've methodically examined and, and rectified any weaknesses they had. And I love his style. He's so low-key and so low-fuss, and it just takes the drama, even, even their bad performances. You know, he's so sort of... Sanguine is that is that the word about it? I, I just love the way he goes about it. To quote Luke Darcy, and I think they really respond to him and play for him. And it's been a superb coaching effort. Um, well done, Don Pike. I'll throw a knot in. Adam Simpson after the win over Carlton, West Coast coach said, "Look, it keeps us in the mix for finals, and that's a good thing. But we know what we are. <clears throat> the whole world knows what you are. What are they? They are." The most lily-livered team fighting for finals at this stage of the year I could ever remember. West Coast on the weekend had 30 less possessions than Carlton, but 20 less tackles. Their tackle count was 45 for the game, of which 10 went to one player. The now disengaged, quite frankly, peeved off Matthew Prittis. He had 10 of 45. That left 21 players to lay 35 tackles. They're incredibly soft, aren't they? They have got guys playing in that team. Now, should we name names? Yep. Lewis Jetta is as committed to a the contact sport of Australian rules football when played at close quarters as I would be committed to going out there and standing underneath a ball with McGovern coming at me. He does not want to get involved in anything remotely physical. Okay, more names. Well, Josh Hill didn't play because he's not phys- as physical as Lewis Jetta. I feel sorry for Andrew Gaff. He's a genuine outside mid, mm. but he's put on a, an embarrassing pedestal of not getting his hands dirty because their midfield, but their midfield's so terrible. If he was in a good midfield, he'd accept it. With their midfield, go in and help them, Gaff. Okay, uh, not for me, second up, and it's a bit of a soft target, but Gold Coast, they... Uh... <laughs> I said on Sunday preview, I can't remember a side in the entire history of the AFL, so talking 1990 onwards, that has been as irrelevant as they are right at the moment. They've got nothing to recommend them. They haven't even got a coach right at the moment. They've got an administration that is doing its best, but what have they got to work with? You know, their playing list lacks heart. They lack interest. They certainly lack consistent four-quarter effort. They, They can't turn in four quarters ever in a game, it seems. They don't get crowds. 
Um, and people don't care. I mean, this, this thing is turning into a basket case and no one actually cares about it. Certainly not in this neck of the woods. So we know the history of, uh, sporting franchises on the Gold Coast. It's going to take a lot of work to make sure this one doesn't go the same way because right at the moment, you know, this is what season six for them. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, season seven. And they're a rabble. This is probably as bad as they've ever been. And I, I don't see where the hope is coming from. Rowan, I actually put things on hold on Saturday night. I wanted to see what Dean Solomon coached at Gold Coast would be like because he was such a hard player. Uh, they were knockoff Viagra from Thailand. For the first half hour, hard as. The next half hour, hard in dispatches. By hour number two and three, by the second half, they were fl- impotent, flaccid, and quite frankly left their followers with a bad case of heartburn at the finish, wishing they hadn't ever embarked on the project. Their second half was actually worse than anything I've ever seen them play. Far too much information in that analogy, Fanny, and it's a family family podcast. Okay, your last one. It's a question. I'm not sure if it's hot or not. What do you make of the very impressive Hugh Greenwood giving the Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee to God in front of everybody on the sidelines. Wasn't that a reverse Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, I'm, but you know, look, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. Uh, it's, yep. In America, you couldn't say a word against it, but we don't have the Deep South Bible Belt and all of that, so we can talk about it. Um, so this is your hot or not? I'm not sure whether it's... I know it's not hot, but I don't know if it's not. I'm asking you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to give it a not. Uh, I, I'm not religious. I don't think many people who know me would think I, I was. And I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I don't decry other people being as religious as they like. I just, do you really have to do that out in the ground? You know, they actually do have a prayer room in, at Eddie Head yeah. Stadium. Why, why not do it there? Do yeah. you, do you need to sort of show mate, a nationwide TV audience that you believe in God? That's my initial reaction. But, um, people who come to Christianity and, mm. and a lot of, um, a lot of, Christians, not part of the formalised church, the sort of Hillsong type of following, which yeah. I think we're talking here. Part of their part of their belief system is to be evangelical, and that is, if I am in the public spotlight, let the world see, let the world see it and talk about it. Yeah. So that is that's part of their belief structure. I feel I feel personally that it is it's. I hope it's not a reg- I hope it's not a, a regular occurrence. No more p- problems having that discussion, but I'd, we don't want it every week, do we? Because that's that's not how I think we have harmony in football by different groups doing that. Uh, yeah, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not outraged by it, and uh, yeah, look, I, I didn't really think too much about it, but yeah, I, I reckon you're better off doing that in the rooms before the game. Okay, last one. I'll make it quick. Uh, you mentioned one Melbourne. Um, Star, I guess I'm going to mention another one, Jaden Hunt. I love watching Jaden Hunt. I've loved him from the moment I first saw him play, I think up in Alice Springs or Darwin. I love his attitude to footy. I love the way he takes the game on. He never stops trying to attack and rebound and be creative. Backs himself to beat opponents with his run and speed and nine times out of ten does. People have criticised his kicking, but I reckon that's on the improve. And I reckon every time I see Melbourne play well, he plays well. I reckon he's a great barometer for them. He, to me, encapsulates 
the excitement that can be Melbourne on the move and playing fast-flowing footy. And I love watching Jaden Hunt. I hope he's a star for years to come. I loved him the first time I saw him play. Well, I loved him. I loved him first. No, you didn't. Oh, no, okay. You're (laughs) going to tell me the story about watching him for Brighton Grammar, wasn't it? Brighton Grammar versus Caulfield. I went with Robert Shaw as coach, and he allowed me to stand next to him while he coached. I was there to watch Salem and Kelly, apparently. And I said, who's that kid off the halfback flank? He is a ripper. Yeah. And he said, he's good. But he told me he's only played footy for 12 months because he was five foot four two years ago and his parents didn't let him play. Yeah. He said he probably won't get drafted. Melbourne took him with the last pick in the draft. Good call. On Footyology, talking top 22s. All right, I think people are familiar with how our rolling All-Australian team concept works. Here's the team from last week. Backline, Jeremy Howe, Alex Rance, Rory Laird. Halfbacks, Michael Hibbard, Michael Hurley, Sam Doherty. Centre line, Josh Kelly, Dustin Martin, Marcus Bontempelli. Half forwards, Robbie Gray, Tom Lynch of Adelaide and Gary Ablett. Full forward line, Eddie Betts, Josh Kennedy, West Coast, Joe Danaher. Rucks, Sam Jacobs, Paddy Dangerfield, Tom Mitchell. Interchange bench, Rory Sloan, Joel Selwood, Matt Crouch, Clayton Oliver. Okay, this week, what are we doing? You know, last week we said we'd watch Michael Hurley. Yep. Well, he spent the game watching Josh Jenkins. I, I think he goes... I, McGovern was, again, very good for West Coast. Yeah, I've got to say, I love Hurls, but his last month defensively hasn't been great. He's, he's accumulating possessions, but he's losing a lot of one-on-one contests. Um, you, but I put him out of the 18, not necessarily the 22. Let's see mm, how it plays out. Can you, put him, can you put a key position defender on the interchange bench? I don't think you can just have midfielders, mm. not in the real world. But we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. Okay. All right. Well, that's one to consider. Um, I'll throw up another one. I'm, I've been going into bat for this guy for a while now, but Matt Crouch can no longer be on the interchange bench. Time for Matty Boy to move into the 18. Good, because I've got a guy that shouldn't be in the 22. Who's that? He doesn't play enough, and now he seems to be the centre of some issues. Gary Ablett. So, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you've got to play football, and it is a team game. Yeah. So he, he, I don't want him in the 22 at the moment. So Gaz are out? Yeah, please. And Matt Crabs really deserves to be in the 18. Okay. But he's uh, not a half-forward flanker. So, all right, well, we've, we've got a hole at centre-half back. So what are we going to do with Hurley? Interchange bench or out of the side? Well, let's mark him on the interchange. And Convince me that he's a valid interchange player. Well, first of all, he's gone from into the team to completely out of the team on the back of 30-odd possessions. Now, I know he got beaten, but he's not mm. playing terribly. Yeah. And there are guys that are not playing at all. So I say that Gary Ablett's out, but I'd like to see Crouch on the wing. Bontempelli can play half-forward flank because he, he rolls forward. Yeah. If we put the centre-half back as, are you happy with Jeremy McGovern? Well, I'm just trying to think what other candidates are there, what other key defenders are going well. I mean, you could always, we've got Jeremy Howe in a back pocket. Could you put Jeremy Howe to centre-half back and someone else into a back pocket? No, Jeremy McGovern's the beautiful stand-up centre-half back, marked beautifully against Carlton again. He's going great. Heath Grundy? McGovern. Mm. I'm going to end up saying McGovern, McGovern, McLovin. (laughs) McLovin. Uh, What was that movie again? Super, super bad. Oh, that's right. Yeah, great movie. Um, no, no, I, I agree with you on Jeremy McCoven. Probably, yeah, probably next one into that key defensive post. So, all right, Jeremy Govan, uh, Jeremy Govan, Jeremy, can't say it, Jeremy McGovern at centre-half back. Yep. You've convinced me on Hurley to the interchange. Um, what about, we've, that's, uh, 
I've, here, I'm going to throw up one more. Really slow start to the year. We mentioned this guy before, though. Luke Parker. I reckon. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've gone into bat for one Adelaide bloke. Now, we all love this guy, but I reckon, if we're honest, the second half of his year hasn't been a patch on the first half, and I speak of Rory Sloan. Yeah, I mean... He's 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 sort of gathered him in like a racehorse and gone past him, Parker. Sloan got had some tagging issues, mm. fought them off in recent weeks. Now got injured this week, so it's been patchy. Parker had three poor games at the start of the year. He's he's played magnificently. He was superb. No, great. He was superb against Geelong, mm. and he just sort of pulsed it out against the Dockers and maybe cruised to the line. But actually, while the game was a little bit hot early, he just destroyed them. Okay, so you agree with me on that? So, okay, Parker comes in for Sloan. So that gives us two changes, McGovern and Parker in to the 22, out. Two fairly big names, Ablett Sloan. But that's the beauty of this team, Finey, week to week. you know, positional changes, Bontempelli to a flank. Bontempelli to a flank, Matt Matt Crouch into the 18 on a wing. And Hurley holds his spot. And Michael Hurley holds his spot in the 22. Back to the interchange bench. Okay, if you want to... Just a quick look. Do you know that there's a player that's been named his team's best player for the last seven weeks? Um, Best, not second best, best. uh, I bet it's someone I've lost interest in, uh, Gold Coast. Nope. Um, I'll put you out of your misery. No, no, don't. Okay, okay, who is it? Nat Fife. Yeah, I knew it would be a team I'd lost interest in. But (laughs) he's played well and he's he's been best... For you, seven games in a row. Yeah, no, it's fair. Uh, wouldn't have had too many competitors on That's Saturday. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, all right, so if you want to see uh, the round 21 talking top 22s lineup, uh, head to uh, Footyology under the podcast section and you'll find it on the bottom of the spiel about this very podcast. And uh, leave, please leave a comment because I'm very interested in your feedback on what you think of our selections. Do we do an NRL and go in camera from here on in? Uh, I don't think so. Good. In camera, I've never quite got that expression. Ca- camera is camera or oh, Italian geez, for the... I'll tell you, a camera is Italian for the word room. Yeah. So it actually means in the room or, yeah. you know, just in the room and not no outside looking in. Yeah, I'm just jealous of your general knowledge. Okay, talking top 22s, please, like I said, give us some feedback and uh, we'll take it on board and maybe react accordingly or um, dismiss it completely. On Footyology, Media Watch. Okay, Finey, this uh, is perhaps the most controversial segment of our podcast, Media Watch. Um, we've uh, had a lot of people tuning in particularly to hear this um, very segment, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, a lot of them are colleagues of ours, or former colleagues in some cases. Anyway, I, I think there's a fair bit of interest out there among the footy public about how the football media works and the various whys and wherefores. And look, if you've got a particular subject you want us to broach in this segment or any other segment, please leave your feedback at the Footyology website, footyology.com.au, and I'll make sure we um, put it on the menu. But I wanted to raise uh, in this episode, Finey, because I've had a lot of people ask me recently, because I've left the age, and people have said, oh, well, you know, you're not going to be so shackled to a party line or anything. But not just about the age. I think about um, media outlets in general, agendas, people suspect that there's a lot of agendas that get pushed in the football media and people have said to me is it true you know does so-and-so really hate such and such why does this person always write about this 
Now, my general answer is um, usually it's not a conspiracy. Usually there are fairly innocent reasons. You know, someone might know more about a particular player or club or a coach or whatever. Uh, when I do get annoyed, though, are when there are vested interests being pushed and they are the reason for the agendas, and even more uh, annoyed when those agendas being pushed aren't the result of a deeply held philosophical conviction, but more about following a story, having written the initial story and wanting that to be proven correct. So... I have got an example I was going to raise. Do you think you know where I'm going with this one? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the age and yeah. being fearless. and I, I, Okay, I, all right. Let, no. let me just clarify something. Yeah. This is about agendas, not gender. Correct. Yes, correct. Okay, yeah, you, you, we are on the same tram here. Now, I've forever got people asking me about Caroline Wilson, what she like, do you two hate each other? Um We've never been great mates. Uh, the discourse between us has always been professional, and I think I've been very supportive of Caro professionally. And I'll say right here and now, I think she's probably the best newsbreaker in the business. Um, as a journalist, I think she operates brilliantly. However, I'd say a couple of things. One, look, I don't think the game's a strong suit, and I've spoken about that before. But that I don't sort of. She's leading the footy typically. Yeah, she, she's killing me. I, I don't think less of her because of that. Um, but a couple of things that do grate on me. One is uh, she has a hard, very hard time ever admitting she's wrong. She's not Robinson Crusoe on that score, but she does. But agendas, and I think there's been a, a few occasions in which she's pushed agendas. And the one finally that really got on my craw is 10 years ago, and it was when there was a big push by the AFL to shunt North Melbourne up to the Gold Coast. And her reporting of the that whole saga, I found pretty, at times, disingenuous. It was always pushing the AFL party line, which is they should go to the Gold Coast, wasn't interested in any sort of rebuttal in a new sense, so never worked hard to dig up news stories that rebutted that case, and then started weighing in with some pretty... I thought um, ill-advised and, and heavily weighted opinion pieces in which she kept saying things like they're damaging the AFL brand, you know, which is a pretty damning sort of accusation to make about a football club, a long and proud footy club with a very staunch and loyal following. And I've got to be honest here, by the end of 2007 when, when this was going on, I'd, I'd had a gutful of it. So the season ended and I had time to sort of turn my attention to this and I basically took up the cudgels for the Keep North at, at North people. And I started writing opinion pieces along the lines of, why is it up to the AFL? You know, why uh, shouldn't a decision of this magnitude be voted on by the club's membership? And that no one seemed to have considered that. And it really annoyed the crap out of me. And of course, once this line started being pushed publicly and there was a bit more balance about it, people came out of the woodwork. And I think a lot of North fans said, yeah, you know what? It's not a fait accompli that we need to go. Why don't we have a, a crack at actually saving this club and keeping it at North? Now, history would seem to have vindicated that decision a hundred times over. They're in a much better state financially in terms of resources than they were then. But that, to me, was a bad example of how the media can really influence outcomes. And when they're as, as important as the survival of a club... I think you've got to be better than that. But the thing that annoyed me most, finally, was that I don't think Caro did that 
I would have had more respect for that view if she had a thought, this really is for the good of football if they go up there. I don't believe she felt that. I believe she... So what was her motivation? Because she'd written the initial story saying North are going to go to the Gold Coast and she wanted to be proven right. It was all about confirming a story. And that, to me, was you're prepared to help sell a club interstate and deprive people of a lifetime's enjoyment of their of their club right. just to vindicate your reporting. And I thought that was pretty ordinary. So at the same time, you'd be aware that I... At that point, I had uh, taken over the evening slot at SEN, the one yep. that I still hold. This is 2007 we're yep. talking about, yep. And I'm very, I feel very passionately and, and connect, I believe, have a good connection with football fans who, like myself, uh, are not in any way important other than we just love our club, maybe more than even football. And to me, it was plainly clear, not from the reaction of North people, just the truth is... The Gold Coast Kangaroos is not North Melbourne. She was pushing an angle, or she was saying that the new, you know, the fans would have this new successful entity on the Gold Coast, and I very was very clear in suggesting that no, North Melbourne fans would see the death of their club, and there would be a new team on the Gold Coast. Mm. And North Melbourne fans through the station embraced that. So whilst you were working with North, stay at North, so was I. Now, you believe, being probably closer to the flame of stories, breaking stories and following them through, you looked at it from that perspective. I also found her reporting um, one-sided, disingenuous and continually harping on this same message, almost not writing the story, trying to create, make the story happen. You looked at it as sort of a... An egotistical following through of the breaking of the story. I was right. Look at how it's played out. I looked at it as, and I believe that um, Caroline Wilson relied, and not as much for now, but under Andrew Demetriou, had had a a favoured status as Andrew Demetriou played favourites in many spheres of his leadership, with coaches, with clubs, with journalists, and... I felt that she was either currying favour with the AFL to further her position of getting classified, or getting information early, if either, you know, in the hope that that would happen, or, and I could never prove this, or in fact it was happening and it was the price she had to pay for finding things out. And through the Assad affair, I felt, the Assada affair, I felt she was ahead of the game on the AFL reporting as Mark Robinson was on Essendon reporting, because, you know... Because of where their favoured sources were coming from. They pick sides, and the sides use them now. Well, that story, story, the Asada thing, was the epitome of that, where where you had two papers in opposing camps, they hitched their wagons to a particular side, that's where the the news was coming from. I should point out here, with the age, that... um, Nick McKenzie and Richard Baker, who did a lot of news breaking during that, they weren't part of that. They they were getting, you know, I mean, we all know how great their sources are in in the wider community, and they were getting they were getting info from elsewhere. And and also, I, I should say this too, Jake Noel, who did some great news reporting on this. I know he was getting information from places other than the AFL. But look, I've I've just played devil's advocate here. I mean, a, a good news reporter would say. Okay, well, yes, yeah, yeah, so-and-so's given me my information, but 
isn't the job of a breaking news reporter to break news. So sort of how you get that, that news of is course. almost irrelevant. Of course. But we are talking, as you mentioned here, we're not talking about reportage of football. We're not talking about the, um, uh, the, the breaking news that a player, a champion of your club, has off-field issues, things that really rile fans. We are talking about taking away from football lovers their team. Talk to Fitzroy supporters. We are talking about amputating a limb, losing a child, mm. changing the lives of... There are, do, does Caroline not realise, and I'm going to throw another name in the mix in a moment, did she not realise that these articles caused incredible hurt even by suggestion, let alone the thing actually happening? People's lives, sadly, this is diminishing, but in no small part in Melbourne, many people's lives are governed the ups, highs, and lows by their football club. Do you want my honest answer? To, uh, my honest answer to that question is no. I don't think she would get that. Well, and it's funny because she's the uh, child of a, a former football club president, Ian Wilson, and okay, so, so so she's lived that. But I, I just think as you get older and you get you get more comfortable and you get looked after and life's, you know, a bit easier, I think you sort of lose that yeah. emotional connection. But in income paper, she's talking about for not 10 people, but hundreds or thousands of people of of taking away the most meaningful or a very meaningful part of their life. And that would have caused, it caused great pain. Yeah, and I'll tell you another thing too. We should have learned. I mean, people should have learned after what happened in 1996 with the Fitzroy yep. yeah, exactly. how, and, how and Melbourne Hawthorne. But they didn't, are. did they? Because this is journos. They live in a cocoon, and when a story happens, it's sort of like all those other sensibilities go out the door. Well, I think it's where we, why we work together and why we have a, 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 a following out there amongst fans that appreciate that we essentially will always be football fans and live the experience, going to the football, standing in the outer and loving the club and having your weekend ruined by a Friday night loss or made by a Friday night win. Yeah. Now, look, at the same F- time... Fans count- first and media people second. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm not ashamed of that at all. I'm I'm proud of that. I'm proud it's to... All I, it's, it's the only... It's the only thing I can hang my hat on. Yeah. I mean, I didn't play 403 games yeah, like yeah. KB, but I'm a, I'm a supporter who absolutely has a deep love for my club yeah. and my day and my my hours and days are, are governed and ruined by successes and failures. It, it washes away, but it's important. And she treated it not as something that was important for individuals. She treated it as the AFL wanted to treat it, as a commercially sensible move with these practical reasons why it should be done and hammered it and hammered it, even though there was a growing noise of North staying at North that most of their members and their president wanted to stay. And she mocked Brayshaw, and she was joined by Patrick Smith. Now, I don't know their motivations, but Patrick Smith was happy to do Andrew Dimitriou's dirty work in the Australian. Dimitriou, and this was proved in Asada, he eventually died on the sword of personal battles. He and Heard became so personal that Dimitriou left before his time and not the way he wanted to leave. Well, that's not the first coach he did that with. He also effectively ran Grant Thomas out of the game. He and Grant Thomas disliked each other, then hated each other. And all of a sudden, 
Patrick Smith, a Walkley Award winner, is mockingly calling Grant Thomas cornflakes in the newspaper. This is beneath Patrick Smith. But why is he doing it? And then when North wanted to go to North muted to go to the Gold Coast, he again gets vitriolic and nasty on Braveshaw and on any fan that would dare to suggest they should stay in Victoria. Now, again, currying favour or actually repaying debt, I don't know, but it is football journalism at its most thoughtless to the fans and most sycophantic and and um kowtowing to the AFL, almost grovelling and ambitious, and I hated it. I, I have to say, yeah, that's strong criticism. I should say here, I, I've got a lot of time for Patrick. Now, Patrick was basically the person that got me to the age, and I've always had a lot of respect for him as a, a really intelligent and perceptive journo. Which but, is why I was so disappointed. Well, An excellent writer yeah, who was doing this stuff. No, but I'd also say, knowing him as I do, I, it would be very, very unlike him to be beholden to anyone. He's not a person who I think uh, you know needs to ingratiate himself to achieve any sort of respect. So I would... He I, knew... I every, would struggle with to believe that, to be honest. Every Well, hang on. Every person close to football knew of the animus between Demetriou and Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. Everybody knew that. that. Yeah. Now, he's an intelligent chap, Patrick Smith, who in no other form would take the position of the more powerful Andrew Demetriou over Thomas just out of hand. Now, Grant Thomas coached and killed it. His attacks on Thomas were savage, absolutely savage. But he also knew at the same time that Dimitri was running him out of the running him out of football. Mm. Does a fair-minded, good journalist like Patrick Smith, he shouldn't stand by and allow that to happen, let alone be a, a real big part of it. He was a big part of Grant Thomas's fall from grace and humiliation, and it wasn't right. It wasn't deserved. Why is he playing a part in it? And even if it wasn't in any way to to curry favour with Demetrio, surely he could sit back and say, "Hang on a second, I'm actually, I'm actually sick in the knife into this bloke as well." Well, I, St Kilda didn't have to be privy to that. I mean, St Kilda didn't have to give Grant Thomas the arse after they made finals in 2006. They well, he did. was given the arse at SEN under pressures, and Grant Thomas was his own worst enemy—a wealthy man who used uh, the radio station to vent his spleen against Demetrio. Mm. But we quickly found he quickly found out who was the more powerful party, and that definitely happened, did it? Because I wasn't working at SEN then. Well, he's he, he and it should have happened because he was told, "Look, you can come out." I've got no problems talking about it. It should have happened. Grant was told you can talk about any AFL issue. Mm. You can get stuck in, and if Dimitri does the wrong thing, you can get stuck into him. Mm. But you can't just come on as part one of our hard hitting football analysts and pluck Demetrio when he's not in the story and tarnish him. So the first thing he did was say, you know, I'm being bullied by Demetrio. He basically said, up yours, SEN, I don't need the money, etc. And at the first offing, he was off. But he was asked, he was told, say, give, say whatever you want, but this we're not having a personal battle on air. And he did it day one. 
We should do a whole episode on this, I reckon, because uh, we, we we're running out of time with this segment. But you mentioned Asada. We can't talk about agendas in football media without talking about Asada. It's pro- arguably the biggest story of all time. I'll give you my take on this quickly. I thought uh, I thought the Ages news reporting of the saga was A1. Couldn't be folded. They didn't really get anything wrong. They were on point. I thought they were ahead of their opposition. What I really had problems with, and it caused me a lot of grief for a number of reasons. Yes, I'm an Essendon supporter, but yes, I was at odds with most of my colleagues, was the commentary we were running on it. And again... Caroline Wilson was responsible for a fair bit of that. I, I found a lot of it intensely but, personal and of course it was. over the top. And and the one, but hang on, hang on. The age, the age was running editorials. Caroline Wilson with the AFL, mm. and at the same time, the Herald Sun was is running James Heard and Mark Robinson. It was like it was like two don two mafia dons taking the, using their conciliaries. And the truth was probably somewhere in between. What I was going to say was, uh, you know, I, I thought the treatment. I've always thought the treatment of James Heard was completely over the top. The one that uh, pissed me off the most was uh, the column she wrote about Tim Watson and about how he seemed more concerned about protecting the football club than his son. And I know, you know, we all know how upset Tim was by that. And in, in that case, I frankly, I agreed with him. I thought it was a terrible aspersion to cast on someone. And you've got no right to presume how someone, the degree to which someone cares about their own child and whether that uh, your football club connections take precedence. I mean, that was an appalling suggestion to make. And I I really, you know, those, those two things, the, the Tim Watson loves his club more than his son, Column and the you know the north to the Gold Coast thing they were the two my two biggest problems with working with Caroline over the last X number of years and at the same time I I knew exactly what was happening and thought it was so underhanded and improper and just not you know just not right just feared income breaking confidences. Throwing Demetrio under the bus over handshaked agreements and breaking it in the Herald Sun because Robbo and James Heard had been verbaled by Andrew Demetrio, which is true, warned they'd be run out of the game and they bided their time and drip fed embarrassing information that, quite frankly, had been agreed by all parties to be private information and. They just used it as a slow drip feed way to annihilate Andrew Demetrio. It was actually very interesting, but both papers played their role on either side of the fence. So getting back to the the, the premise here with this whole segment, uh, agendas, I don't think they happen as often as some people believe, but they do happen. And I think we'll leave it there. And, and just, uh, I want to say something about agendas. I think they're real and I think they're fascinating and I don't mind them. I'm not, you know, I think it's an interesting part of it's an interesting part of po- po- political or, or sporting reportage. It's not a terrible thing. It's just interesting. All right. Well, we've covered a bit of territory tonight, and uh, no doubt upset a few people. Uh, it's time to move on. On footyology, Roco and Finney's rant off. Okay, it's that time of the week again. We get you know what off our you know what's. Uh, I don't know how angry you are, Finey, but I'm pretty fired up. But uh, I'm going to let you go first tonight. No messing around. I'm going to count you in now. Three, two, one. Rant. 
my rant tonight is about corporate greed. No, bullying that whilst in the sport of soccer is a timely reminder to Australian rules football fans not to take anything for granted and to be on guard because there are big multinationals out there that are willing to deprive you of your ability to watch football just to sell a friggin' phone plan. My love of EPL is now diminished because I have to get an Optus phone deal and plan to watch EPL. It doesn't exist on TV not even cable TV. Now, it's not going to happen. A, I'm not swapping to Optus. I hate them. B, I don't know if I'd be able to watch it anyhow. You need an extra box, more wires and cabling to go with the spaghetti of wires and cables I have at the back of my box anyhow. A new remote control, I probably would never work out how to watch EPL under Optus. But these bastards have made it the only way you can watch soccer from EPL in Australia. They are like the mafia. I'm serious here. They have basically said to you, you ever want to see EPL again? Then uh, kill off Telstra. You're now with Optus. It's wrong, and they deserve the utmost scorn. In fact, a pox on the house of Optus. I hope sea lice eat through their coaxial cables and their optic fibres. I hope that their errant signal is picked up by North Korea who then bomb all their communication towers. And I hope their CEO is sacked in a sex scandal that sees him having an affair with a Telstra phone operator from overseas. That's what I want for Optus. Nothing but the worse, you destroyers of my love of EPL and my ability to watch it. Very angry. What's the AFL connection? That We need to be very careful. If you're a footy fan... Don't take anything for granted. It was all on TV and there to be watched, and then it's gone, and it can easily happen. If broadcasting goes to the highest bidder, believe me, we could be down to two free-to-air games a a week, and all those Foxtel games, you'll have to buy, you'll have to get on Optus, you'll have to get phones and whatever. Trust me, it can happen. So it's a salutary warning. Yeah, and I just wanted to stick it up Optus. They are... They are, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's just cop it there before we get any lawsuits. But I'm oh, just making sure oh, there's no. an AFL connection. No, 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 no. I just want to say thank you for taking away EPL from me. That's all. No, I, I'm with you on that one. It's been very, very annoying. All right, hard act to follow that, but I'm going to have a go. I'm firing up. Finey, count me in. One, two, fire up, go. I'm fed up with football hyperbole, Finey. Why does the footy media continue to treat the public like they're brain-dead morons, incapable of seeing what's already bleedingly obvious if they've got a pair of bloody eyeballs? Every game these days is pumped up to within an inch of its life, even when it's been certified unwatchable within five minutes of a start, like that goddamn awful North Melbourne Collingwood game a couple of weeks back. It was a shocker, one of the worst games in years. But the Channel 7 callers were carrying on like to admit that would be like revealing some state secret or something. And we all know only US presidents on Twitter do that. Not a classic, but very entertaining in its own way, they said at the time. And when I dared suggest on social media that might be gilding the lily just a tad, they got all butthurt about it. Do they really think anyone left watching that absolute cowpad of a game was only going to switch off then because some horrible truth had suddenly been delivered? Newsflash, guys, we're watching because we have an interest in the result, not because it's a better Saturday night entertainment option than another law and order repeat. Come to think of it, actually, even Miss Marple's murder mysteries would have been better. At least the killer in that could hit a target. 
Saturday's Geelong-Richmond game was just as bad. Eddie and co were banging on like it was the biggest battle since the taking of Stalingrad. Jeez, I mean, it was okay. It wasn't a bad game. But if every fairly routine home and away win is epic, unbelievable, a one for the ages, where do you go when we're actually presented with a classic? Is there any chance we could have guys calling games, not doing a job application for a ringmaster of P.T. Barnum Circus or something? Newspapers are just as bad. Every news story these days is presented like a dramatic development, devastating blow or major shock. Listen, people, some fringe player tweaking a calf on the training track isn't the end of the world as we know it. No, that's reserved for when some AFL executive you've never heard of before resigns to go to another HR-created pseudo-job at another organisation. Not a newspaper, obviously, because they've already got 5,000 pseudo-executives with bugger-all vision expertise and the people skills of Kim Jong-un. Cut the crap! Stop treating us like we're thick, or I'm going to really lose it. I'm going to get epically mad. The maddest I've ever been in the history of mad, or at least in the last 15 minutes. You know what I say about hyperbole? I always think of one thing. The caller that rang me up and accused me of indulging in hyperbole. And I said, I beg your pardon? (laughs) He said, your hyperbole is as bad as the rest of them. And I thought he was accusing me of not knowing anything about NFL football. I really did. (laughs) I worked out he was talking about hyperbole. Will that favour get gridiron happening in Europe? That'll be the next stage. The (laughs) hyperbole, ball, ball. (laughs) Okay, that's it for episode four. Thanks for listening. We certainly had a lot of fun bringing it to you. Finally, as you know, we always finish off with some sort of musical connection, lyrics, uh, meaningful lyrics, and... We're talking about three teams in the premiership race, uh, Adelaide, Sydney, GWS. What's a good sort of song lyric-wise to sort of sum that up, do you think? I reckon the great, the great wordsmith of our time. Who's that? Russell Morris. When he, when he extolled. Not the former Hawthorne halfback flanker. I tell you what, when he extolled virtue, yeah. his words made sense. Don't you think the real thing says it all about greatness? I don't need to know about players. I don't need to know about form. I Read think, them out. Yeah, give, it a, give it a bill. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Hang on, I'll just call them up. There's a meaning there, but the meaning there doesn't really mean a thing. Come and see the real thing. Come and see the real thing. Come and see. I am the real thing. I think you put in two mouths too many. Did I? Yeah, you've you've completely misinterpreted Russell Morris. We'll have to cut this show again. This Crunch Time podcast, proudly brought to you by iPrimers. Make the right NBN choice with iPrimers, your NBN experts. Call 131 101.